This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news. We begin with breaking news, of course. This is an ABC News special report. And we have a decision just breaking from the Supreme Court. On the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, we're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just rejected a challenge. Good to the morning. Court. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. Hello and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. We're here with our seventh episode of our Supreme Court season of Polylog. In this episode, we'll be talking about the pipeline, where judges actually come from. We've talked about qualifications. We've talked about what makes a good judge. But where are these actual judges coming from? Is there a pipeline of judges? And if so, what does that look like? Exactly. And I think... To start us off, Naomi, you have some just kind of basics on what the structure and coverage of the federal judiciary even looks like as a whole. That's right. I wanted to give some context, like kind of looking beyond the, the Supreme Court, what the federal judiciary looks like. And if you are like an actual legit lawyer or legal buff, this is all probably like very basic for you. But we have a lot of non-lawyers who are listeners too, and... I think this context could be just helpful. Absolutely. We are not lawyers, although our egos would say otherwise. <laughs> so we the, play one on podcast. <laughs> so the American federal court system has three levels. There's the district courts where trials are actually conducted. There are 94 district courts across the U.S., Then there are circuit courts, which are often called appellate courts. So they don't do kind of like full trials. They're, you know, the appellate system to the district courts. And there are 13 of those. And then we have the Supreme Court, which is the final level of appeals in the federal court system. And those are the nine justices that we know and maybe love or maybe hate. So there are currently 870 authorized Article III federal judgeships. So our Constitution, Article III, kind of lays out the federal court system. And under Article III right now, we have 870 authorized judgeships. 179 of those are on the appeals courts, and almost 675, almost 680 are district court judges. There's also nine Court of International Trade, which... I didn't spend as much time looking at them. So there's a lot of federal judges. And if you've been following along, our entire season has focused on how unsatisfied we are with the media coverage of the Supreme Court. So it will be shocking to literally no one that the coverage (laughs) of circuit and district courts is totally embarrassing as well. Ongoing analysis, ongoing coverage, like literally doesn't exist anywhere. It takes a significant amount of work to even find the names of circuit or district judges. If you want to read their bio, well, you're going to have to do some like all like some Internet sleuthing all weekend long, which I almost did. But then I, I just didn't have the time. 
Now you might say, but Naomi, but Naomi, I read a bunch of news articles in the last couple of years about Mitch McConnell, about Trump, and there was coverage about the appointments and confirmations themselves, kind of on a very like macro level. Yes. So there was coverage in terms of the appointment. In general, there's coverage about the appointments by a president, you know, how many that were done. You probably read that, you know, there was a shockingly high number of federal appointments that were done by President Trump in his last two years. And it's true. He did. A quarter of district court judges right now were appointed by President Trump. It's a lot of judges. Yeah, because you just reminded us how many judges there are. 670. Right. And President Trump also appointed the same number of judges in four years that most two-term presidents are likely lucky to accomplish in eight years. So, you know, a very aggressive pace in filling these spots. According to an NPR article by Carrie Johnson, nearly seven in 10 of the Trump judges are white men. 28 of the 200 are people of color. There's only one Latina appeals court judge, and there are no black appellate judges that were appointed. Wow. <laughs> many, many, many judges. That's ridiculous. Yeah, literally over 200 people are like, oh, yeah, I don't know a black person. It's just like, <laughs> your list is trash. <laughs> many of these judges were also in their 30s and 40s, and they could stay in those seats for decades. Like, these are lifetime appointments. And that's the plan. Exactly. Lifetime appointments. Let's underscore that. Lifetime appointments. Forever. Unless they get a better job. Which... I did read some stuff about judicial salaries, but... Well, what I meant is, like, they're going to move into higher levels of, 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 of service. Judgeships, yes. yeah. You probably did see coverage about the political maneuverings of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and essentially that, you know, it was really his vision, uh, along with some outside conservative legal groups that completely reshaped the court. He stalled many, many, many Obama nominations which led to a huge vacancy list that then President Trump was able to fill when he won in 2016. And then, of course, that's on top of Mitch McConnell refusing to give Merrick Garland his confirmation hearing. Yep, another <laughs> after vacancy he was he nominated, right, and uh, giving President Trump the opportunity to appoint and then the Senate confirm now Justice Neil Gorsuch. So yes, there is some coverage about the appointments and confirmations themselves. But there's not much to read or learn about in our national kind of media ecosystem about who these people are, who is serving in these lifetime appointments. You can't easily find out where these people went to school, what their background is, if and how strong their affiliation to the federal society is, or you know other legal society membership groups, right? There's several. Like you're trying to look and you, you can't find Yeah, it's it's very manual. It's very difficult to find any information about them. There's no analysis of like X amount of Trump judges, you know, went to this law school or have, you know, the average years of experiences, you know, seven years and Obama, it was 12 years or what. There is nothing like that at least in our news organizations. Maybe in if you're in law school and you're studying this, I don't know, you tell me, maybe that's there. But in law journals, maybe that exists. But in our general news system, there's none. And part of the reason this like absolutely drives me crazy is that it's even worse at the local and state level for judges that are elected. 
We have yeah, yeah. normalized and accepted a completely opaque system that offers like zero shades of transparency. And again, if they're being elected, then voters presumably need to know something, something about them anything. beyond their names. Yeah. For a branch of government that is meant to decide what is fair and literally what is justice. <laughs> For a branch to then invite zero accountability, like, it literally just makes my skin crawl. Like, it's just, it's so unacceptable. And and it's just so normal. It's just, like, everyone's just already drinking the Kool-Aid and is, like, doesn't realize they've been poisoned by the zero transparency. And it has huge effects, huge effects. You know, you talked about how many judges are there. I just reviewed some of my notes from my reading you know, those federal trial courts in all their districts, they, they handle 340,000 cases a year. 340,000 cases. And those courts of appeals cover 60,000 appeals filings, okay? These are, the, these are the courts that are looking at whether something is constitutional or not before the Supreme Court takes it up. Exactly. And so they do a lot, a lot of the like bulk meaty work, right? Of like what is constitutional or not, you know. A right. lot of that is defined at that circuit court of appeals level, and even though there are eight thousand requests for appealing those that go to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court only grants one percent of those. Okay, so that means ninety nine percent of the requests are are denied. Right, Our, meaning that the federal circuit the court of appeals is, is the is the is the last word on those issues. Exactly, the last word on the Constitution on those issues. Ninety nine percent of the time, that it's even that's even appealed. Even more percent, in, if you if you talk about when it wasn't even appealed, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because only like, you know, a little over ten percent of them are actually appealed. But hey, let's not talk about it. It's not it's not worth lifting a finger to discuss, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, okay, almost 680 district judges. Maybe that's hard to keep up with, right? Right. But, like, 13 circuit courts, we can't have some... Yeah, exactly. ...freaking basic organizational map of who is where and how long they've been there and, like, what's the average tenure at each appeals court. Like, there just seems like you should be able to find some basic facts... Yeah. And and you really can't. And like, we're not like, again, we are not lawyers. But like, if you are in legal distress, <laughs> right, and you have been convicted of a crime you didn't commit or like are just in serious legal jeopardy, just understanding where and how things can get appealed or who might be decided. Like, there's just so little to even understand who has authority and what. And like, it's not like we have the most, we can't even say we have like a truly just criminal, criminal or like civil justice system to then also have a system that is like, has zero accountability. Yeah. I mean, particularly because these are lifetime appointments, right? That is the thing that like should hit you in the gut every time you, you mention this sort of thing, which is these people are going to be there forever, forever. There's not, it's not like, oh, well, you'll just get to reelect some new ones when uh, 
when there's another president? Well, no, you'll get to fill some ones because people died. But, you know, a quarter of them are really young. So those people are going to be there for a very long time. Yeah. And like, I, I, it wasn't a big part of my research. So if someone has any thoughts on this, I'd love to hear it. But one interesting kind of small thing that I read was apparently Chief Justice Roberts has noted several times how concerned he is around the like salary compensation of federal judgeships. They are essentially anywhere between like 200 and like 280K. Like his is the 280 and the other ones are like 220 and 240, which is essentially what like an early associate might be making in big law. Right. And so he's talking about like, we're not even going to get the most experienced, like qualified people who are going to want to leave their careers with the salaries that they are right now. And I don't like not to say that we need to pay these people tons more, but it was just like this whole facet of like who is being recruited and what are the incentives for these roles? Right. <laughs> and and it was just like it, it opened up a window of like who is going for these roles. Right. And, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it's it, and like are they averaging at like 50 and the 30 year olds and 40 year olds are you know, more of an anomaly or is that a growing percentage? And we should be more concerned with these like really underqualified under, you know, low experience people getting these jobs. Like, I don't know, because there's nobody talking about it. There's nobody analyzing it. There's nobody even keeping track in the mainstream press, in the mainstream press. Correct. Right. I hope someone is doing something somewhere. Well, law schools and law journals kill a lot of trees. So I'm sure that somebody (laughs) is doing the work in some vein somewhere. But it's not making it to the conversation where it needs to be made so that people can pay attention to what's going on. Right. right. And one of the main points of talking about this today when in our s- whole series on the Supreme Court is that this is the pipeline to the Supreme Court. Right, exactly. You know, the D.C. Circuit Court, the 13th Circuit Court, leads to many (laughs) nominations to the Supreme Court because they also often deal with like federal issues. That's so their cases they see are very relevant. But it's like, I just wish more people knew (laughs) about that. And like something else would be, you know, certain industries are in certain parts of the country and they might get certain cases more than others, right? Like I'm assuming the Fifth Circuit gets a lot more like oil and gas cases. Because it covers Texas, you know, stuff like that would just help us understand the skill sets and the bandwidth of what people are reviewing and what experience is then coming up to the Supreme Court and what is missing, like just straight up what is missing. And it's just like really frustrating because it is a huge part of how judges for that eventually make it to the Supreme Court are developed, are prepped are hiring clerks who are then clerking for the Supreme Court. Like it's all tied together and there's like just zero tracking that we see in our national news. And these courts really matter because when the Supreme Court hands down a decision, that decision, they're writing yes for the public, yes for posterity, but they're largely writing for these judges who are going to have to interpret their ruling as as what the law is now, right? Because a lot of the reasoning behind 
taking up a case at the Supreme Court is when there is a lot of conflict between different decisions being made at the at the lower courts, right? When lower courts are trying to interpret the Constitution and they seem to be reaching disparate decisions, one saying, oh, well, the Constitution says this, and another decision saying the Constitution says that, that's a reason for the Supreme Court to step in and to say, look, no, here's once and for all where we say that the Constitution is on this issue. And then the Supreme Court's actual decision that they are handing down is written with an eye towards being interpreted by these lower courts. But these lower courts can also interpret it in whatever way they want. I mean, in the book, The Brethren, that I have referenced many times before, it talks about how the Supreme Court justices would finagle their language in these decisions with like actually trying to figure out how the lower courts would interpret them and saying, hey, this needs to be written more clearly because we want the lower courts to know what to do in this case. And there were multiple cases that were discussed in the Brethren where they had to deal with, the Supreme Court had to deal with an issue again and again and again because they hadn't written it clearly enough or dealt with it clearly enough to satisfy the lower courts. The lower courts continued to misinterpret them or misinterpret the situation. This happened a lot in obscenity cases where they thought that they were like, oh, finally we're done with obscenity cases. And then a year or two later, they're like, why are we keep getting these obscenity appeals? <laughs> right. We, I thought we had already ruled on this. No, they hadn't, not clearly enough. So they had to keep ruling again and again. It happened on, on school busing as well. They had to right. keep ruling again and again and again because it, it wasn't clear and there were new issues that would arise. All that to say that these lower courts matter. They definitely matter. And and we as readers and listeners, as news consumers, like deserve some basic understanding as to what they do and who they are. And if we could even just start there. Yep. That would be greatly appreciated. And stop assuming that the audience of readers understands it already. Stop referring to it without saying what it does and what it's there for. Well, and like, I think that's a... The coverage that is there about the political accomplishments of Mitch McConnell and and President Trump, like it's still in the framing of like politics, right? It's still in the framing of like, wow, what a political mastermind. Right. As opposed to like, but what is like the years of experience that went out the door and what is the years of experience coming in or like, who are these people coming from and you know what? Where were they trained or you know, like any type of analysis as to who they are rather than just like ooing and eyeing at what Mitch McConnell was able to get done. Like that's the same story, just a different face on now <laughs> as the as the subject. Right. Like by always framing Supreme Court stories or, you know, in this case, just the federal judiciary there, you're literally just it's completely leaning on the same framework to understand this branch of government solely through politics and not through the work that they do. Exactly. Again and again, it seems like discussions of the court are rooted in political conversations that are only about winners and losers, right? Exactly. And winners and losers at the game. And this is just, a, you know, the courts are just another 
facet of the game. That's it. Yep. Rather than their own domain. Exactly. Well, Brendan, as we talk about the pipeline, we wanted to spend a little bit more time on one specific part of that pipeline that is very influential, very powerful. Talk to us a little bit about the Federalist Society. Yes, the Federalist Society. You may have heard of it before. It's extremely important to talk about the Federalist Society, especially when it comes to the Supreme Court, because at this moment right now, five of the six conservatives justices on the court were key in the Federalist Society. That is huge because there are only nine justices on the court. That means there is a majority of justices on the court who subscribe to the Federalist Society. What does that mean, though, to subscribe to the Federalist Society? What is the Federalist Society? Well, the Federalist Society is a society of lawyers and law students. There's about 45,000 of them right now. And what they do is they have lawyers chapters in every major city in the United States, also in London, in Paris, in Brussels, in Toronto. And most importantly, they are established at all of the law schools in America. There is a chapter at every law school in America. And this is a conservative society of lawyers, lawyers who come from many different conservative stripes. These are libertarian conservatives, social conservatives, religious conservatives. Every stripe of conservative finds a home within the Federalist Society. And it was begun... Back in 1980, there were three unhappy conservative law students back then, elite conservative law students, one at Yale, two at the University of Chicago, two men, one woman. This is Stephen Calabrese, Lee Lieberman Otis, and David McIntosh. They were unhappy with the liberal leaning of their law school, of their law professors at that time, and unhappy with the progressive bent of law that really started in the New Deal and continued through the Warren Court, which we talked about Earl Warren's role as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court with Brown versus Board of Education, and then continuing through Roe v. Wade, which was not the Warren Court, it was the Burger Court. But these progressive wins on the Supreme Court and the great society efforts by LBJ and the efforts to expand the federal government dating back to the New Deal were deeply troubling to these conservative lawyers. And they felt the need to start a legal movement, a legal organization. And that's what they did. But the Federalist Society very early in its years became hugely effective because it was started at the right time. It was started right around the time of the Reagan presidency. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. And the Reagan presidency was hungry 
for new young law students in their Justice Department. And so the Justice Department sucked up a lot of members of this Federalist Society and was excited to put them to work crafting policy, crafting speeches and messages that really became the foundation for this Federalist Society. So it was really supercharged by the Reagan presidency at that time. Now, the Federalist Society is a very interesting organization because it holds a lot of events. Events are at the heart of what it does, really. They sponsor the 75 lawyers chapters just in one year, sponsor about 300 events a year that are attended by about 25,000 lawyers. I mean, that is huge. Yeah, that is huge. And the law school chapters sponsor about 1,100 events a year attended by 70,000 law students, professors, and community members. And kind of the key to to their success has been very early on, one of their founders recognized that in order to get conservative ideas into the mainstream, they needed to set it up as a debate. And so they set it up as a debate. A lot of these events are debates between a liberal representative and somebody representing the conservative legal mind, right? And this way, they could get liberals and other students within the law school to listen to their ideas, right? So these events aren't, they don't close the door on liberal ideas. They try to actually invite them in and knock them down. But they also have tons of publications where they publish different ideas. An interesting key to the Federalist Society's success has been something that you may remember from an earlier episode of Polylog where we quoted Justice Samuel Alito speaking at a Federalist Society annual gathering trying to debunk myths about the society. If you remember, Alito mentioned that the society doesn't take public positions on policy issues. Some of those watching tonight may be new to Federalist Society events and may have heard a lot of misinformation about the society. So let me say a word at the outset about what the society is, what it is not, and why I have been a member for many years. Let me start with what it is not. It is not an advocacy group. Unlike other bar groups, it does not take a position on any issue. It doesn't propose legislation or lobby or testify before Congress or file briefs in the Supreme Court or any other court. And indeed, that is true. Here is a quote from, and I do want to credit, you know, one of my sources here, One of my key sources on this section is a book called The Federalist Society, How Conservatives Took the Law Back from Liberals by Michael Avery and Danielle McLaughlin. And here is a quote from their book talking about that. The society itself does not take public positions on policy issues, legislation, the outcomes of Supreme Court cases, or judicial appointments. Articles are written, briefs are filed, and cases are brought by individual members or by sister organizations, such as conservative public interest law firms. This allows the society to maintain a big tent that promotes cooperation among conservatives with different views by avoiding internal battles over official policies. It also avoids visibility for much of what the Federalist Society accomplishes. 
For example, Lee Liberman Otis, one of the founders, vetted judicial nominees during the administration of George H.W. Bush. Although the Federalist Society does not formally endorse judicial nominees, it would be highly artificial to consider her influence on judicial selection as the business of a single member. I just feel like it's such a red flag when anyone's like, I'm just here for the discourse. I don't have any agenda. Like, Yeah, but it's, it's just so ugh. fascinating that this, this policy by the society itself to say that they don't take a public position is, is quite brilliant, right? As this short paragraph explains here, it helps them save from the trouble of like coming up with a party platform, right? And it also truly avoids visibility because they can say, we don't take policy positions and yet its members do, right? And its All members push policy ideas like crazy, but they're like, well, it's not official, right? This isn't the official uh, position of the Federalist Society. And indeed, it isn't. And yet it has so much influence. And we can't mention the Federalist Society without mentioning where its money comes from. And it does have money. Oh, and, it has a lot of money. Yeah. A and not, lot, a not lot surprisingly, of money. a lot of that money comes from conservative philanthropists such as the Koch brothers and the John M. Olin Foundation. So I mentioned the Olin Foundation because it was actually key to the development of one very important recent Federalist Society member who's been in the news, and that is Amy Coney Barrett. So the Olin Foundation, back in 1997, a conservative philanthropy working alongside the Federalist Society, set up a fellowship for people who wanted to go and become law professors. And here is how the Olin Foundation's effort is described in Linda Greenhouse's book, Justice on the Brink. In 1997, the conservative Olin Foundation working with the Federalist Society, set up a fellowship program as a separate track for young conservative lawyers to prepare to enter the teaching market. The year-long fellowship came with a stipend, an office at a law school, and ongoing feedback and support from the senior faculty members affiliated with the program. Acceptance, as with the other fellowship programs, was highly competitive. Stephen Tellis's book on the conservative legal movement includes a list of the first 31 Olin Fellows, 1997 to 2006, all but 10 of whom had found teaching positions by the time the book was published in 2008. Amy Barrett received one of the Olin Fellowships in 2001, following her clerkships and a subsequent two years as a law firm associate. She spent her fellowship year at George Washington University's law school, and, of course, then she shortly went on to become a law professor at the University of Notre Dame, where she stayed a law professor, until which time she was selected for her judgeship as a federal judge, and then appointment after, what was it, two years as a judge? Right. To the Supreme Court. Yeah, these mentorship, these fellowship programs, they... They're fascinating. So I won't <laughs> name names, but uh, when I was in graduate school, I studied a lot of healthcare inefficiencies and I actually got selected into a fellowship program 
that I would say across the board definitely leaned more conservative. And it was a program for graduate students, PhD students, law school, I think even med school. And the whole experience was so eye-opening for me because there was just such an investment in my research and in my work. And it was they paid for trips like multiple trips for to me to go to dc there were convenings where i met the other fellows and there was readings and they sent us books and materials for us to review beforehand there were speakers so you got to meet them and they you could apply for sponsorships to do research in your research area if you need to do like a research trip or things like that And there were overlapping programs with other institutions and other organizations that were very similar. And so there were people who did, you know, uh, my program, you're allowed to do up to two years. And so they would if you're if you're getting a Ph.D., you're easily studying for it for, you know, four to six years. Easy. Right. And so they would do one or two years with one program, another year or two with the second program, do maybe even a third. Each one of them could potentially do a several thousand dollar research grant like it's a way for your career to grow and be mentored and to be fostered and i was amazing yeah it it, like it is a genuine like investment and caring of your career right like i think sometimes people who aren't aware of these spaces just assume they're very like they're suspect, right? Or they're mm-hmm. like suspicious. And what was so telling for me was that like this organization was putting in the work, the long term work in these early conservative thinkers and researchers <laughs> who are going to be, you know, developing policy, teaching in universities, you know, running economics programs like they're inv- they're investing 10 15 years before your your value super high right? right right and it was it was just completely mind blowing and so like in learning about the federal society and how they do it like no wonder their members are so loyal yeah no wonder they feel like they've benefited so much and of course they're going to be benefiting the federal judiciary across the board right like the loyalty is authentic i guess is what i'm trying to say because the organizations have put in the work and put in the money to foster these people. Yeah, there's there's a line from the book on the Federalist Society that, that is literally, quote, conservative philanthropists understood much earlier than their liberal counterparts that what they were seeking to win was a war of ideas and that winning that war requires patience. And I do have to play another clip here from this book because I think it underscores the value of the ideas that the society nurtures and finds a way to inject into not only Supreme Court decisions, but public policy as well. The Federalist Society provides organizational, financial, political, intellectual, and social support that is crucial to the empowerment of conservative lawyers, scholars, and judges. For example, Debates organized by the Washington, D.C. chapter have created networks that are especially valuable in overcoming the intrinsic informational challenges of coordinating action across the executive branch. The debates are also crucially important, of course, 
because, as Tellus explains, ideas do not develop in a vacuum. Ideas need networks through which they can be shared and nurtured, organizations to connect them to problems and to diffuse them to political actors, and patrons to provide resources for these supporting conditions. The debates and symposia offer many lawyers the opportunity to engage in intellectual discussion and analysis, which is rare in post-law school practice. Just a full vision there. Yeah, absolutely. It's like talking about how you can't just come up with an idea and expect it to become law, right? It doesn't work that way. It needs to be nurtured along the way at all these different levels, and the Federalist Society worked very, very hard to make that a reality. And, you know, elsewhere in the book, it highlights how even in law schools, you know, people study Supreme Court cases as if they're just, you know, islands of major events that just happen to make it to the court. And that's not true. You know, cases don't just happen to make it to the Supreme Court spontaneously. That's not how it works. That might be how it seems when you read stories in the newspaper, but these are a result of, as they say in the book, deliberate tactics and a finely honed strategy to move the law in the conservative direction. And and it's all it's all right there before us, you know. And when it comes to the conservative legal framework, one of the key and most important parts of that when we're talking about the Constitution is an idea called originalism. And this was really nurtured by Federalist Society members and adopted pretty much across the board as one of their foundational elements. Now, some say that the godfather of originalism was Robert Bork, <laughs> Failed nomination. Yes. But he previously had served in the Nixon administration. He was kind of the guy during the Saturday Night Massacre when Nixon tried to fire everybody who who decided um, to do as Nixon told him to do, <laughs> which was one reason why his nomination failed to the Supreme Court. But he helped originate this idea of originalism. And the idea was popularized during the Reagan administration by Reagan Attorney General Edwin Meese in a major speech to the American Bar Association in 1985 that was written by young Federalist Society lawyers. Literally, they helped write his speech. And Meese described originalism as the notion that judges should issue rulings based on the original understanding of the authors and ratifiers of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, rather than on outcomes that reflect the judge's own biases or policy preferences. This idea of originalism was in conflict with the prevailing notion at the time that the Constitution was a living document, a document whose words had to be interpreted with modern eyes, right? The way that we understand equality might be different from the way somebody who owned a slave understood equality, right? And so therefore, we need to live up to the ideals, potentially, of the Constitution, and not just the way it was understood at the time it was written. That has been a huge foundation of lots of Supreme Court president and interpretation over decades before this idea of originalism 
originated in the 1980s. Just because it uses the term original, does it mean the this philosophy, this jurisprudence was originally around yes. with the founding fathers? Exactly. And yet... It came... I mean, like, it was out when we had, like acid wash jeans right Right. like that's the age of originalism (laughs) yeah it's literally like (laughs) it's like some of those companies that are like founded proudly in 1985 it's like um so just not that long ago (laughs) yeah like two generations (laughs) dates back to our founding in 1985 (laughs) but Larry Tribe, Harvard professor, constitutional law professor, who's very much in the news a lot of the time, mentioned that Mies, in this 1985 speech, was, quote, successful in making it look like he and his disciples, that is, Mies, were carrying out the intentions of the great founders, where the liberals were making it up as they went along. It was a convenient dichotomy, very misleading, with a powerful public relations effect, end quote. But what does all this mean, right? What does originalism really do for the Federalist Society? Well, while some people say that originalists are not motivated by political policy, the reality becomes pretty clear (laughs) and was made pretty clear by Calabrese, one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society, one of the three original law students who a few years ago, collected some of the original speeches and documents that were about originalism and finished his collection of these speeches with this, which I will quote once again from the book, The Federalist Society. The doctrine of originalism does lead to some fairly predictable conservative outcomes. Calabrese closes the introduction to his collection of originalist documents by noting some good consequences that would flow from adopting originalism. This country would be better off with more federalism and more decentralization, with a president who had more power to manage the bureaucracy. If we did not abort a million babies a year, as we have done since 1973, if students could pray and read the Bible in public school, and if the Ten Commandments could be posted in public places, If citizens could engage in core political speech by contributing whatever they wanted to contribute to candidates for public office. If we could grow wheat on our own farms without federal intrusion. If criminals never got out of jail because of the idiocy of the exclusionary rule. If our homes could not be seized by developers acting in cahoots with state and local government. And if state governments could not pass laws impairing the obligations of contracts. So it sounds like originalism is a pretty perfect vehicle for installing every conservative idea under the sun. Yeah, it's very convenient. Very convenient. And yet, (laughs) it is the vehicle for all of these conservative justices who were appointed by these conservative presidents. And the Federalist Society was successful not just in the Trump administration, as we talk about all those Federalist Society judges that Trump appointed, but very, very early on. As we mentioned, it got started right around the time of the Reagan administration. And by the time of the George H.W. Bush administration, which remember, George H.W. Bush was the vice president to Ronald Reagan, and he was elected president 
for just one term. But during his four years in office, every single federal judge that he appointed was either a member or approved by members of the Federalist Society. And the same was true under George W. Bush. So this has been a very, 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 very long time. Well, with the exception of Harriet Meyer, who was nominated by George H.W. But didn't successfully get appointed. Right. Yes. But it's been a very long time that these judges have been in power. And they have been motivated by a pretty core belief, which is that most of what the federal government currently does is or should be deemed unconstitutional. They believe in a much smaller federal government. So I want to end it here with some questions about what this should mean for the media, right? How should the media cover the Federalist Society? It's very tricky, right? It's hard to cover a society that doesn't issue a report saying, here's what we stand for. Right. And I think this is another example why like robust ethics rules on the court itself is more important because it's going to be harder to expect things from outside organizations that are influencing the court, although they should be rigorous in their coverage. But if judges were required to report where they gave speeches or where, you know, their schedule for the season. Like Supreme Court justices. Supreme Court justices. Then there could be a reporter trying to, like, attend that event. And maybe it's still private, but then, you know, they're trying anyway. Like, it's just sometimes there was something came out this summer. I I was listening to a SCOTUS talk podcast, and I can't even remember what just what judge was saying what but the hosts were saying how like it's just luck that there was some audio that was released by it because there are so rarely reporters whenever these judges give speeches because we don't know when they're going to give a speech and where yeah yeah right and so i mean you mentioned some like thousands and thousands of events that the federal society hosts yeah we, we literally don't know when our lifetime appointed federal judges are going to be speaking at them. That's an absolute joke. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's like, what I want to know is what would coverage look like if the media made it crystal clear how much fealty the conservative justices showed to the Federalist Society ideals, right? Yeah, like what is the Venn diagram of Federalist Society and the decisions of these conservative judges? There, there's not much of a diagram at all. It's yeah, it's just, like a full it's, circle. It's a full circle. <laughs> but I'm saying like people aren't even aware of that, right? Yeah, and that's where it it occurs to me that like a lot of what the media, it feels like, misses are two facts. And that is, I originally wrote here very simple facts, but I don't think they're simple. Number one is that the Supreme Court is not apolitical. And it's always been a very political institution. And it's always been filled by people with political motives and political ideas go i mean you can see that and we showed that conclusively with our historical episode right where we talked about how freaking john adams was super political with the supreme court thomas jefferson was super political with the supreme court every president is super political supreme court has been filled with politicians for for centuries okay that's just what the court is it's always been political but Fact number two is that the Supreme Court today is political in a very different way from how it was in the past. And I think that is because it's driven largely by this powerful organization called the Federalist Society. 
It's different because it affects the court and its decisions and its role in our democracy differently from previous political majorities in the court's history. Because this court today sees things through the same judicial interpretive eyes, right? In the past, you know, a good example is the court of uh, FDR, right? Remember how we talked about how FDR wanted to pack the court because he was so pissed off that the court previously had been dominated by appointees of Republicans. And FDR didn't like that all of these Republican appointees were shooting down the New Deal legislation that he had put in place to pull the country out of the Great Depression. And he was very mad about this, and he tried to pack the court. And then he failed, as we mentioned many times. But what he didn't feel, fail at was the fact that he was elected president four times. And so he was able to appoint, I think, everyone but one, like eight out of the nine justices of the Supreme Court. And these justices were appointed by a president who was extremely political. So they were political appointees, all appointed by the same president. And yet these political appointees, although they largely upheld FDR's New Deal provisions, they dissented from each other time and time again over the preceding decades because they had different ways of approaching the Constitution, different experiences, different backgrounds, different parts of the law that they thought were important or needed to be interpreted differently. And so even though FDR appointed all these people, the power of that group was diffused very, very quickly after FDR died because they just saw the law differently. And nowadays, that's not the case. This court, because of the power and the effort and the work that the Federalist Society put in, this court sees things the same. They see it through the same glasses. They've come from the same place and they've come from the same law schools, right? They've and as a result, their decision-making is much more efficient, right? Their ability to strike down laws or, or previous precedent like Roe v. Wade is much more efficient. And they are very efficiently re and quickly remaking our Constitution in, in a new way. And that needs to be covered clearly by the news media. And it's not. I think the media is just saying okay, these people are associated in this way, there's a bunch of Republicans, and they're ruling in Republican conservative ways, and that's what you might expect. But that's not, that's not the case. This is historically very, very different. Right. I think it's being very naive, or like best case scenario, you're being naive about the comprehensive strategy, long-term strategy that this organization has done within the American legal system or well, international because they also have branches outside the U.S. too. But kind of most naive is that they're just kind of unaware. But like the most cynical version is that it's they either don't want to make it that complicated or they don't want people to know that our American legal system can be so defined by such like a clear minded jurisprudence strategy that is that is only a few decades old right like yeah um that level of kind of deceiving people th that this is just like a group of people who get together was just really it's really gross <laughs> and 
And we've talked about this, Brendan, off the mic all the time. But like, I think sometimes American political journalism really fails to capture like full trends of things. Yeah. And this is an example of a very specific, abstract (laughs) uh, transformation that I think can be really hard to describe, let alone to demonstrate to people. So what's the solution? How how would it look different? How would you like it to look? Well, as someone who identifies as, you know, with progressive politics, I would love to see a counterweight that's effective. <laughs> right. And there, we should mention there is one called the American Constitution Society it's that like was founded around the, budget. the year 2000. Quarter of the budget hasn't been nearly as successful. Right. Yet. Maybe they'll get... They have their own long-term strategy. I don't know. So I guess that would be my first thing. It'd be nice for there to be a counterweight. As a news consumer, I just feel like we need like a reset, a reframing of how we cover the judicial system point blank. Like how we talk about impact, how we talk about who's who's on the bench, where people are trained, like some type of analysis for non-lawyers as to like what's happening in law schools and training. Like there's just such it's hard to understand the snapshot of things, let alone the trajectory of things. And so as a news consumer, like understanding this space constantly feels like it's getting further and further away from you. And so there's so many different points where you can (laughs) news organizations, I think, can be more concrete in their coverage of the federal society or federal judiciary. And it's just like pick a spot, any spot, like it'll be better than the nothing that you're doing. Like if you want to talk about legal training, like start talking about law schools and what's happening at law schools and how they're training and you know, who is mentoring who and like start there. If you want to talk about like the pipeline and circuit courts, like start there. If you want to start around kind of like who clerked for who and where are they 20 years later, like that might be interesting to do once a year. I don't know. But like do something that makes our coverage of our federal judiciary like a tangible branch of government for people in this country it's just like it, it it's non-existent yeah that you're exactly right it should be covered as a as a full branch of government right with that level of focus and energy and an effort for the reader to understand or the viewer to understand and that's where i just keep thinking about you know what do we want to see more do we want to see you know big profile pieces that say here's what the federalist society is and everyone should know about it Or do we want to see this sort of information imbued into every single article about the court or the major articles about the court? And when I think about it, it's I kind of lean more towards that because there have been, you know, big magazine think pieces, you know, in Mother Jones, I'm sure, about the Federalist Society. Right. Or the New Republic. But how many people are reading those? I mean, we were just, I was just sharing with you an article from the Neiman Journalism Lab about how just a quarter of Americans have ever paid for news directly and that those who make over $150,000, about half of them pay for news, right? So who's paying for these, you know, long form articles that are delving deep? It's not most of the American news consumers, right? So yes, It's nice to have long form articles on that. It's nice to have the occasional 
podcast series devoted to this topic, aka polylog. <laughs> well, and there are there are a lot more podcasts focused on the Supreme Court than there were just yes, a few years ago. Very true. Very true. But I want to see this data, this information, this insight into the topic of the Supreme Court and our judiciary infused in the articles that break through to the front of the New York Times. The big news stories about when we see a justice retire or die, when there's an appointment, when there is a confirmation hearing, when there's a major ruling like Roe v. Wade, these facts, these basic tools for understanding the court and this branch of our government have to be in those stories because otherwise people aren't going to understand those stories. They're not going to know what it really means if they don't know the basics. Like you say, Naomi, the trajectory of these things. Otherwise, they just get a snapshot and they don't know where where these lawyers came from, where these justices came from, where these cases came from. They don't know it. And therefore, they can't really understand what it means. Yeah, and I think we should like be aspirational in our hopes of the news coverage. Like, do I think there's going to be drastic changes six months from now? No. Do I think there's going to be drastic changes two years from now? To be honest, no. But I hope in 10 years, it's very different. I hope in 15 years, it's very different. And so you just kind of have to start somewhere and slowly start chipping away at like how many reporters you put, how many researchers do you have? Like how... How do these news organizations try to track and analyze the court itself in a meaningful, ongoing way beyond the May and June decisions? Exactly. And one of the reasons this is so important takes us to what our next episode is. And that is an episode about reform. Because if we're not talking about how our system is being used... Some might say abused, but others might just say used, right? Like, how is the system being used? If we're not talking about that, about how players are affecting the system, how this the Federalist Society is using all these tools that are totally at their disposal and they're doing a great job at what they're doing, right? They're, they're reaching their goals. They're achieving their, their conservative legal revolution. Well, if we're not talking about that, and we're just assuming, oh, wow, how about that? There's an interesting case that made it to the Supreme Court. Oh, and that's how the court ruled. Interesting, huh? If we're not understanding all the stuff that like was is under the surface, then we're not going to be able to ask ourselves, are we okay with that, right? Are we okay with our systems being used this way? You know, it occurs to me that the conservative movement is able to advance its legal views through originalism, because our Constitution isn't changed that often, right? Like, if you just go back to what it says in the Constitution, and we live in a world where the last meaningful update to the Constitution was over 50 years ago, then sure, going back to the Constitution is an easy way to turn back the clock 50 years, right? Or mm -hmm. even more. But if we live in a world where our Constitution is actually amended or updated, or our systems are updated to how we might want them to be today, then you can't say, let's just go back to the Constitution. That doesn't advance 
the conservative cause. So we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with a constitution that is, in the words of Scalia, dead, 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 or do we want a living constitution? And that might require actual reform. Reform of the constitution or reform of our institutions or reform of how we go about vetting judges, discussing judgeships. Maybe they shouldn't be lifetime appointments, right? All of these are questions that we need to start asking ourselves or that we should be reconsidering when we really delve into how our system is being used today by all the players. And that story can't happen if we're not talking about the basics. But let's get to that story. Let's get to the story of reform in our next episode. Yeah, we have a lot to say. We always think... (laughs) Yeah, often we think we don't have that much to say about some of these episodes, and then bam, we're on the mics for like 80 minutes. So... (laughs) And I know for sure we have lots to say around reform and how, if and how it's normalized and how we talk about it. But until then... If you have any thoughts about our comments and understanding around the federal judiciary and the pipeline leading up to the Supreme Court, we would love it if you would send us a note at podcast at polylog.com. You can send it to me on Twitter at SotoNaomi underscore. You can reach out to me on Twitter at BeastIdle and the show at PolyLogCast. Thanks, everyone. And we'll talk with you in our next episode, which will be in two weeks. Bye. Bye.